Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and the text for the sermon today is Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. These words, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word to our hearts. Dear friends, when we meet someone for the first time, we normally introduce ourselves. We state our name, and then in the conversation that usually follows, we say where we live and whether we're married and how many children we have and what we do for a living and so on. Saying certain things about yourself is the foundation for building a relationship. Well, our Lord does something similar in our text. So far in this series on the book of Revelation, John has been telling us about Jesus Christ. And he starts out in verse 1 by telling us that the book he's writing is a revelation of Jesus Christ. A revelation of Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place and which he sent and signified by his angel to his servant John. Following this in verses 4 to 7, John greets us in the name of the triune God, ending with God the Son whom he describes as the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kings and priests to his God and Father. And then, as we saw last time, John tells us that Christ is coming. And when he does, every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Well, now in Revelation 1 verse 8, Christ tells us about himself. And what he says is nothing short of astounding. And he doesn't give his name. He doesn't tell us where he's from. He doesn't tell us any personal details at all. He doesn't tell us things about himself that we might tell about ourselves. He tells us who he is. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, how wonderful those words must have sounded to the original readers of this book. This is the first time our Lord speaks directly in this book. And he doesn't speak again until the last few verses of the book. But what he says here is absolutely amazing. And so with the help of the Lord, let's consider these words under the theme, the glorious self-revelation of Christ. And we'll consider, first of all, the wonders it contains, and secondly, the comfort it imparts As I already mentioned, Christ in our text reveals several wonderful things about himself. First of all, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, the words Alpha and Omega refer to the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. 
By referring to himself as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, it's likely that our Lord here is echoing the words of the prophecy of Isaiah. In Isaiah 41, verse 4, God asks, Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? And he answers his own question. He says, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he. Similarly, in Isaiah 44, verse 6, we read these words. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. And again, in Isaiah 48, verse 12, God is recorded as saying, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Well, we have the same language here in our text. John refers to Christ, or rather, Christ describes himself as the first and the last. Now, similar language is used two other times in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 21, verse 6, where it refers to the Father, and again in Revelation 22, verse 13, where it again refers to the Son. And the fact that the same words are applied to the Father and the Son is no small proof of the proper deity of Jesus Christ. And that stands to reason. If both the Father and the Son are described using the same words, then contrary to what Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and others teach, the Son must be divine. He must be co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But what exactly does this mean? What does Jesus mean when he says that he is the Alpha and the Omega? Well, to explain that, we must understand that this expression, Alpha and Omega, is a figure of speech. It's called a merism. A merism employs usually two polar opposites to express totality or completeness. For example, if I say I search for something high and low, that means I look for it everywhere. I look for it on high and I look for it below and everywhere in between. And so when our Lord calls himself the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, he means he is the beginning and end of all things and everything in between. One translator paraphrases this part of our text like this. He says, I am the one who causes all things to begin and brings all things to an end. I am the beginning and the end and the sum and substance of all things. Well, what are these things that Jesus is referring to? Well, we can say, first of all, he is the beginning and the end of all things in creation. He created all things. He maintains all things. He is bringing all things to their appointed end. The God who brought the world into existence is the same one who will bring the world to its final completion. We could also say that he is the beginning and the end of all things in history. Everything that happens, happens for a reason. It is by divine appointment and it serves to propel history forward to its ultimate conclusion, which is the second coming of Jesus Christ. His history is literally his story. On this point, Dr. Joel Beakey writes this, and I quote, At every point from start to finish, Christ is Lord of history. 
He was present at the beginning and is at work through all time in the lives of men, the affairs of nations, the rise and fall of civilizations, and the cycles of nature. And when time has run its course, he will write the final chapter and give final disposition to all things. Thirdly, we could say that Christ is the beginning and end of all things in redemption. The work of redemption was planned by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. It was executed by the Son in the fullness of time, and it will reach its final conclusion when Christ comes again in glory. It is his work from start to finish. Fourthly, Christ is the beginning and end of the Scriptures, both of the law and of the gospel. He stands in the first verse of Genesis and in the last verse of Revelation. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, The scriptures are the swaddling bands of the holy child Jesus. Unroll them and you find your Savior. Which stands to reason, since he is called in scripture the Word of God. But the phrase Alpha and Omega refers to other aspects of the person and work of Christ as well. One commentator, John Gill, observes that the word Alpha is used by the Jews for the chief of persons or things. And we do the same thing, don't we? If I get my car repaired and someone asks me how it drives, I might say, oh, it's A1, meaning it can't be better. Or if I do well in a subject at school, I'll get an A on my report card. Why an A? Because like Alpha, A is the first letter of the alphabet. And as such, it indicates the highest, the greatest, or the best of something. And isn't that true with respect to Jesus Christ? Let me quote John Gill here. He says, Christ is the chief as to his divine nature, being God over all, blessed forever, and in his divine sonship, none, angels or men, are in such sense the Son of God as he is. And in all his offices of prophet, priest, and king, he is the prophet, the great prophet of the church. Never man spake like him or taught as he did. He is the most excellent priest that exceeds Aaron and all his sons, having an unchangeable priesthood. And he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He has the chief place in the church. He is the head of it and has in all things the preeminence. He is the chief in honor and dignity, is at the right hand of God and has a name above every name. But, Gill remarks, Christ is also the Omega, the last and the lowest. As in his state of humiliation, he writes, he was not only made lower than the angels, but that man. He was despised and rejected of men and scarcely reckoned a man, a worm and no man. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. This phrase Alpha and Omega may also refer to the eternity of Christ, an attribute which he shares with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And by eternity, we mean he has no beginning and he has no end. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Nor was there any before him, nor will there be any like him after him. He is God, as Isaiah says. And beside him, there is no other. This is further confirmed by what follows. After declaring that he is the first and the last, Christ goes on to say that he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. 
Now our Lord uses exactly the same words in verse 4. There John greets the churches with these words, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. In verse 4, however, these words referred to the Father. But now our Lord Jesus uses these same words and applies them to himself, showing again that he is co-equal and co-eternal and co-essential with the Father, that he is fully God. Now, needless to say, this is an astounding statement. By means of this statement, our Lord is affirming his eternal presence. He is everywhere at all times. He always has been, he always will be, and he still is. But he's also affirming his eternal self-existence. This truth is highlighted in the Greek text, which begins with the words ego emi, or I am. Now, the Lord Jesus often used that phrase when referring to himself. He speaks of himself as the door. He says, I am the door, I am the vine, I am the good shepherd. In fact, in the Gospel of John, there are no less than seven of these I am statements. And these words echo the words that God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. You may remember when Moses asked God who he should say had sent him, God replied, tell them that I am has sent you. Now the word I am in Hebrew consists of four letters, technically called the tetragrammaton, the four-letter word. And the words, the letters are the equivalent of the English Y-H and W-H, which is translated into English as Jehovah or Yahweh, although we really don't have any way of knowing for sure how this name is to be pronounced because it appears without vowels. Now, by means of this word, God expresses his eternal self-existence, that he does not depend on anyone or anything for his existence. His existence, in other words, is rooted in himself. He is the God who is. Theologians refer to that as the aseity of God. This word combines the Latin word a, meaning from, and se, meaning himself. The doctrine of aseity teaches that God derives his existence from himself, and this sets God apart from all other creatures, including man. The Puritan Matthew Henry observed this. He writes, The greatest and best man in the world must say, By the grace of God, I am what I am. But God says absolutely, and it is more than any creature, man or angel can say, I am that I am. And the burning bush was a perfect illustration of that, wasn't it? Just as the fire did not depend on the bush to keep on burning, and the bush was not consumed by the fire, so God does not derive existence from himself. He exists of himself from all eternity to all eternity. Now the aseity or the self-existence of God implies at least two things. It implies, first of all, that God is absolutely self-sufficient. According to one commentator, this means that God does not have any unmet needs or unsatisfied desires. He does not need any help. He is not codependent. He is not living on borrowed time. He doesn't live or move or have his being in anyone except himself. Secondly, it implies that God is immutable. That means he doesn't and cannot change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our Lord reveals one more of his attributes in our text. He says he is the Almighty. 
Significantly, that word occurs ten times in the New Testament, nine times in Revelation alone. The Greek word that's used here is pan, pantokrator, which is derived from the words pantos, meaning all things, and kratos, meaning both might and dominion. For God to be the pantokrator is to exercise sovereign power and authority to rule all things in all places and at all times. Theologians call this the omnipotence of God. The word omnipotence is derived from two Latin words, omnia, meaning all, and potence, meaning power. So when we say that God is omnipotent, we mean that he is all-powerful. That means he can do anything, anything that is not inconsistent with his nature. For example, God cannot sin, but he can do anything that he sets his mind to. In this self-introduction, therefore, Christ reveals several things about himself and what glorious things they are. Dear friends, what a Savior we worship and serve. There is no one like him. He alone is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now since that is so, will you not believe on him? Will you not follow him? Will you not serve him and obey him and glorify him? He's no ordinary man like you and me. He's God incarnate, co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential with the Father and the Holy Spirit to fail to believe on, to fail to follow, serve, obey, and glorify Him is to fail to believe on, follow, serve, obey, and glorify God. And that's a serious matter. But now why does Christ do this? Why does He introduce Himself in this particular way? And why does he inject himself so suddenly into the prologue of this book? Well, that brings us to our second point. It's to comfort his people. Now, some commentators are baffled as to why this verse is here. We learned last time in the previous verse, John announces the second coming of Christ, and he speaks of the certainty of his coming. He says, behold, he is coming. He speaks of the manner of his coming. He says, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. He also speaks of the response to his coming. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And then he ends with, even so, amen. As if he was finished and he had nothing more to say. But then we have the words of our text. And here our Lord reveals himself to be the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And some have said, well, that verse doesn't belong here. It doesn't seem to have any connection to the verses that precede it. It interrupts the flow of thought. But is that true? That's not true at all. What's our Lord doing in verse 8? He's revealing himself. Yes, but for what purpose? To comfort us. John has just said that Christ is coming in verse 7. And before he does, many terrible things will happen. And John's going to explain that later on in this book. Before he does, our Lord announces that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In other words, he's assuring us that whatever is going to happen, he's in control. Nothing will happen by chance. Everything will serve his divine purposes, which is to propel history towards its final goal, the second coming of Christ and the triumph of his church. And we know that because, first of all, Christ is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. 
It's like our Lord is saying to us, I am the one who initiates all things, and I am the one who brings all things to their appointed end. I created all things, and I will therefore bring creation to its final goal. Therefore, do not worry. I'm in control. Secondly, he says, I am also the one who was and who is and who is to come. And that means, as we've seen, I don't change. I'm immutable. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if I don't change, then my purposes for my people will not change. I have promised to bring every one of my children to glory, and I will not go back on that promise. I will fulfill that promise no matter what. Thirdly, he says, I am the Almighty One. That means nothing is impossible for me. I will do what I have purposed to do no matter what. No one can prevent me from realizing my purposes. Well, my friend, do you see what a comfort this was to the original readers of this book? And what a comfort it is for us today. The original readers of this book were facing persecution. Opposition to Christ and to his people was on the rise. Storm clouds were gathering on the horizon. The future did not look very good at all. And it's no different today, is it? When you consider everything that's going on around us, it may very well be that within our generation, we too may be facing persecution. Certainly there's a growing intolerance for certain teachings of Holy Scripture. There's an intolerance for the teaching of Scripture on human sexuality. There's an intolerance of the teaching of Scripture on women in office, six-day creation, the certainty of the final judgment, the reality of hell, and the fact that there's only one way to be saved, which is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, the world today seethes at such teachings. They don't fit in with the diverse, inclusive, every man can do and live as he pleases utopia that many today are trying to construct. As long as we refuse to give in, we will be a target. And it may happen sooner rather than later. And the political situation in our country is, is a concern as well. Our political leaders are ideologues who put their own ideology ahead of what's best for the country. And to this, we could add the serious moral degradation of our nation, evidenced in the widespread acceptance today of homosexuality and transgenderism. And we wonder, where's all this going? Where's our nation and the other nations of the Western world, which once were founded upon Christian principles? Where are these nations heading? It's hard to say. I tell you this, we're not heading in the right direction. We're a ship without a rudder, a ship without a captain, and it's scary. And we wonder, where is all this leading to? But then we read the words of our text, and we're reminded who's in control. Ultimately, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And therefore, dear friends, we have nothing to fear. He is in control, and he will direct all things to their appointed end. Oh, do you believe that today? The prophet Isaiah was facing a time of uncertainty just like we are. We know that because in chapter 6 of his prophecy, he mentions that King Uzziah had died. 
And for the most part, Uzziah was a godly king. He worshipped the Lord, and he encouraged his people to do the same. But his death gave rise to considerable uncertainty. What would his son Jotham do? Would he continue to walk the same path? And if not, what would become of the people and of the church of God? Well, no one knew. Neither did Isaiah. And he was worried about it. And as he wrestled with these questions, suddenly Isaiah saw a vision of God in the temple. He was sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above the throne stood seraphim, each one, he says, had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And they cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we read that the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And overcome by what he saw, Isaiah cried, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And at that moment, one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched his mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Now, why did the Lord give this vision to Isaiah? Well, several reasons. But one reason was in order to assure him that no matter what might happen, God is in control. He was seated on his throne, and therefore he had nothing to fear. And my friends, neither do we, if we trust in him. Ah, there's the question, isn't it? Are you trusting in him? I don't know what the future holds for us as a nation I don't know what the future holds for the church of Christ, but I do know who holds the future. And therefore, dear friends, do not be afraid. Look to him. Trust in him. Cling to him. He is the great captain of our salvation, and he will bring us safely home in his own time and in his own way. Amen. Dear friends, it's our great joy to be able to preach to you the Word of God every Sunday on this station. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Please take the time to write us a short note. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can email us at banneroftruth at frcna.org. And please indicate the call letters of this station. If you take the time to write to us, we'll gladly send you, free of charge, a wonderful booklet entitled Faith of Our Fathers. In this booklet, Pastor Neil Prunk 
the former radio pastor of this program for many years, explains the so-called doctrines of grace. We hope it may be a rich blessing to you. Please note that we do not send out CDs of our radio messages. However, you can access and download all of our messages at any time from our website at www.banneroftruthradio.com. That's banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can visit our webpage and make a donation right on the webpage. Our webpage, again, is banneroftruthradio.com. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.